Well, take your Bibles, turn with me in our continuing uh, study of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7 and verses 17 to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 40. I could have titled the, the sermon a little bit differently. One thought I had was from chapter 7, verse 28, if you just look there real quickly. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. So I thought maybe we could call this message, Marriage Will Cause You a Lot of Trouble. <laughs> Yesterday I officiated a wedding. This was not my text. <laughs> On one hand, this is a passage that elevates singleness because Paul, not only was he single, but he understood some of the spiritual advantages he had because he was single. But um, this passage is saying something far bigger than that. He is saying, not just, I'm going to debate the pros and cons of marriage versus singleness, but rather that regardless of any status we have in life, anything that we would say, yeah, that's me there's something more important. And that is regardless of our status, serving Christ is most important. Um, if you believe in Jesus for eternal life, then your purpose should be to serve the eternal purposes of Jesus Christ. And so whether married or single, that's true of you. This passage happens to land for us on, on Father's Day and Studies show just how big dad's influence uh, is spiritually in a family. And I, I, I love being a dad. I love uh, having a family. But there's actually kind of a warning that I'm going to share later this morning that might sound like a really strange one. Don't worship your family. Don't worship the idea of family because there's something bigger happening and that is that God is building his eternal family. And single or married, we are all part of that family and to serve the purposes of God in building his family is first. So we we have to understand some of God's true priorities that we'll see here today. So this passage really does talk a lot about marital status, but it doesn't start there. In fact, it starts with two others kind of status in society issues to illustrate, I think, how irrelevant status in our world uh, can be. Verse 17, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God called him. This is the rule I laid down in all of my churches. So, so appealing to a status has been an issue elsewhere where Paul has been, but he says just uh, be content in your present status, whatever that is. And if you were with us last week in the first part of chapter 7, you know that he has just discussed marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And many times people will seek marriage, or they will seek divorce, or they will seek remarriage, hoping that somehow this change in status is going to be the key to their fulfillment or, or happiness. And it's like Paul is saying, after, after that first part of this chapter, saying, just, just put a pause on changing status so that we understand the relative unimportance of our status, really. But where God has, has assigned you for now, uh, be content and accept that. It's not, he'll go on to say it's not wrong to marry. 
But don't make marriage the holy grail of happiness. He applies it first to the area of Jewishness, which was marked by the sign of circumcision in that day. Verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? And the issue of called here is the issue of called to salvation. Chapter 1, verse 9, called into fellowship with his son. So when he was saved, was he circumcised? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised because why? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Great words, great words. So since you are believers in Christ now, circumcision is not the issue. That little surgery on on baby boys was a big deal to Jews throughout the Old Testament pre-Jesus Christ era. Uh, It was, every Jewish man knew that it marked him as someone distinct from the world around because he was a follower of of the true God. Um, so whatever, you, whatever status you had going into salvation, just don't worry about that anymore. You're believers now. And you see, there were some Jews who were trying to compel those who came. There were Jews who were saved who tried to compel uh, Gentiles who were saved. Now, you need to become Jewish. And you can become a little more Jewish if you are, if you are circumcised. And Paul has made the point, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. Galatians 612. Your identity is not Jewish, but in Christ. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. But he has just told them, for in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what's your new status, he says? It's being in Jesus Christ, that phrase throughout the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So don't change your status. Trying to be something different, being a little more Jewish, is not what matters. What matters is the new creation. What matters is faith expressing itself in love. Or verse 19, what matters is what? Keeping God's commands. It's a heart thing that determines your identity, not being more Jewish. So this raises the question to any of us, what is our identity? When we think of ourselves, who, who, who are we? Are we? Are we our hobby? Pilot, motorcycle rider, you know, hunter, are we our career? Because you do so well at what you, what you make a living doing? Our family, ethnicity, skin color, money. In fact, really the next issue that he goes, after the circumcision status issue, the next thing he goes to is something that really is about, about finances, because in Corinth you were either a slave or a free man. And everybody knew who was who. Was who. Who are you? Verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation in which he was when God called him. He keeps repeating that. Don't be so eager thinking that changing status is what you need. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you that you're a slave, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. 
For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. Interesting. You were, not, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And then again, brothers, each man is responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Slavery was a very real thing. It was a very official status. And it would, it would restrict and confine you. Are you a slave? Don't be troubled by that. Well, of course it bothers you that somebody owns you and can totally control your life. But Paul is saying, if you're a believing slave, that means your identity, God sees you not as slave, but he sees you as totally spiritually free, as free as anybody else. You're one of his kids, and that's what matters. What matters is you're in his family, and that is your identity. But if you can gain your freedom, and there were some ways that some had opportunity to buy their way out of slavery, then, oh, do that. But it's almost like he's saying, don't make it your focus in life to get out of your status. Don't think of yourself because of your status as being second rate. And so often we do. We are as Christians sometimes just as guilty of maybe meeting people and instantly doing a little calculation, sizing up our status compared to whoever we just saw or met. Rich or poor. Attractive or not. Black, white, brown. Socially awkward. Or as cool as we think we are. And we just, we make almost without without even trying to. We make little calculations of like kind of where we rate. We as believers should be the least prejudiced people because God sees these issues of status as totally irrelevant. And so what does Paul tell? That, that, that's an encouragement to the slave. What, do you, what does he tell those who have the free status? It, it's kind of interesting what he does there uh, to say, he who was a slave when called by the Lord is free, but similarly, this is verse 22, he who was free when he was called is Christ's slave. So it's kind of like a little bit of a, of a rebuke to say to the, to the believer who is so proud of being free to say, you realize you're actually a slave too. Why? Because you were bought with a price. God owns you now. And that's a good thing. That's the same reason he said at the end of chapter 6, to honor God with your body because you've been bought with a price. This sense of being a slave to Christ is, is vital to our understanding of ourself. And then finally, don't be slaves of men. And I think that's written to both groups saying, don't be slaves to the way other people perceive you. Get over your identity being in anything else except in Christ. What defines you? And so this one's a financial one, and I don't know if there's a bigger one than that, because it just seems like our, our money is so personal to us that we, we even like give ourselves little, little status points if, if we're gaining ground financially. And we feel like we've kind of lost a few points if, 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 if there's a downturn or something, or we, 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 something happens that it, it, we lose our business. It didn't like, now, we're, now we're a little lower in, in status. It can be something as simple as, where do you live? There's a natural progression, right? You know, you go from your parents' basement to getting your own apartment. Then you get out of that apartment and, 
and you're renting a house, not an apartment, and then you, you're not renting a house, you're buying a house, and then you're not just in that house, but you bought a better house, and you're now in a better neighborhood, right? It just, there's a little bit of status, just bing, bing, bing. We're, we're putting ourselves up a little higher. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to get out of slavery. It's not wrong to prosper and be in a better stage or a better house. But please don't see your status connected to those things because what matters is what? You are in Christ, a new creation, and you, are, um, you should be obedient, verse 19, and you should be content, verse 24. So it's like he's laid a tremendous... Uh, groundwork or foundation for saying, now let's talk about that single versus married thing. Because everybody pictures themselves in a marital state, right? And it can become so consuming. So he says, let's talk about that. And his point is going to be this. Focus on serving Christ, not whether you are single or married. Focus on your service to Christ. But he is answering a very specific question that's a little bit puzzling to understand. Uh, when he starts a sentence like he does in verse 25, now about something, just like he did uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it's something they wrote a question about. We don't have the questions, so we've got to kind of figure out the questions by the answers he gives. Now about virgins, some translations say betrothed. About virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, it, the world was troubled then too, I think it is good that you remain as you are, content in your status. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Here it is, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What is the question that they have asked him? A little complicated, but let, I think we can understand a key point, and that is, don't make marriage your goal. And if you do marry, accept the struggles that come with it. About virgins, who is that? Um, I think the best understanding is that these are betrothed virgins. Uh, betrothal in that day. Uh, even more Jewishness in Jewish world than the Greek or Roman world. But it was, it was really a bigger deal than engagement. Uh, it was more than just a ring and a picture on Facebook. Uh, it, betrothal meant that you had signed the, the documents. You were married, but it was not yet consummated. You didn't move in together, okay? But it was more official. And so who is asking this question? If you remember from last week in the early part of chapter 7, there were some of these people evidently, uh, we called them ascetics, and they're, they're found in, in every religion, it seems, where they are rigidly self-denying themselves different things, and these people looked down on marriage and seemed to even propose that if you were married and abstained from sexual intimacy, that was more spiritual. Okay? So it seems that evidently there were some in the church who were betrothed to be married. And they were getting pressure from some of these legalistic ascetics saying, you know, you think you should really should be, should be married? And it's interesting because Paul was single. And Paul, as we can tell, recommended singleness for a lot of reasons. It's like they, they, these ascetics kind of seem to have a, a leg to stand on. They could, they could kind of make a point saying, you know, Paul, come on, you're saying singleness is so good, so shouldn't they end the relationship, break off the engagement, cancel the wedding? 
Paul is so wise. Paul is so wise because he understands that married, married or single is a different category. It's a non-absolute, right? When there's an absolute from God, when he is speaking for God in the first part of the chapter, he didn't, he didn't back away from saying what he thought. Chapter 6, sexual immorality, he, he says it like it is. But on this one, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Let me just give you some advice. He says, on this issue, as a non-absolute, I really can say yes and no. And then in verse 27, he describes, and our translations say it different, but pledged, married, freed, divorced, loosed. The, the point is, don't seek, don't become discontent with your status and say, I've got to change my status on one hand. But no, don't try to trap me, you ascetics. Don't try to trap me into a dilemma to say, oh, don't get married. Because you actually have freedom in this. Verse 28, if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if this betrothed virgin married, married she's not sinned. Uh, so you may do what you think you should do. I'm just going to warn you, though, since, I've, since I'm giving some good inspired advice, those who marry, verse 28, such people will face many troubles in this life. And just go ahead and laugh, cry, poke your spouse at this point if you want to. I would, however, suggest that if you're giving an anniversary card to your spouse, don't use this verse. <laughs> I, I kind of even wonder if, is Paul giving a little bit of a jab to his married friends uh, as, as he writes this? I, you know, the Greek language didn't have emojis, but if it did, would, it, would there be like a smiley face or a wink at the end of this uh, statement just as we chuckle today? I don't know. But if... But if that is a bit lighthearted, the next section is not. Verses 29 to 35. I want, I'm going to read, read it all the way through so we get the, the overriding point. But it gets really serious. It gets, you get to see his real heart. And as we read that section, of, please try to follow along in, in, in a scripture here. I think that's page 927. But as we, as, we, as we do, I'd like to just kind of tell you three three statements that I underlined so we get the major point uh, and not, don't get lost in, in it at all. Um, verse 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. That's the first thing I've underlined. The time is short. So the reason I'm talking about this is the time is short. In what sense? From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. He gives five examples. And secondly, those who mourn as if they did not, and those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. And those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. That's the second thing I've underlined. Time is short. The world in this form is passing away. Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern or anxiety. That is, an, an unmarried man, the single, is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Likewise, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. But here it is, that you may live 
in a right way, in undivided or undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's the third thing I've underlined. Living in undivided, undistracted devotion to the Lord. So time is short. This world's passing away. Live in undivided devotion. Undistracted in your devotion serving the Lord. Those matter. So while he has said, don't make marriage your goal, make sure you make serving Christ your goal. Because time is short. Life is short. Eternity is long. So don't make the most important issue in your life your marital status. Don't make whether or not you're a card-carrying circumcised Jew or not your, your major deal. Don't, don't be so concerned if you are a slave or you're the free guy, the one who can, can prosper in business and, and, and grow and get better crops and buy better horses. It, he says those things actually don't matter. Just make sure that you are living in undivided devotion to the Lord. Don't let the labels of life define your life. Your identity is you belong to Christ. Your mission is to serve Christ. So get over the world's expectations of your status or what's a preferred status and do what God has equipped you to do. But understand, there's some advantages, disadvantages to singleness or being married. It's almost like Paul at this point kind of goes from being patient Pastor Paul to authoritative Apostle Paul. People, we only have a little bit of time, he's saying. Wake up to the realities of time. I'm going to say something I kind of hesitated this week to think, should I say this, but I think, because it hurts to say it, but I want to bring it up. Six months ago, Pastor Seth was taken way too soon for us. But I can so easily imagine him preaching on this passage with great conviction. I, I recall him saying, I don't know if he got it someplace or these were his words, but he says how as believers we are not physical people who are having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual people who are just having a physical experience here for a while. Understanding the temporary nature, how hard that is to learn, but how obvious it is. Our physical experience is short, but we are eternal people. The time is short. So we need that truth at funerals. We need it in aging. Time is short. And if whether Paul was thinking of his death that would come, or the rapture that he was hoping for. If Paul thought time was short 2,000 years ago, only imagine how much closer we are to approaching midnight when Jesus raptures his church. And we join Seth and Dave and Dan, who stood on this stage singing last year on Father's Day. Time is short. So, verse 29 to 31, our marital status, our trials, our possessions are also 
terribly secondary to serving Christ and uses five illustrations of life circumstances that dare not deter us. And, and the, the way he states them, it seems like he's using a little bit of a literary thing where he goes, let me say it in exaggerated terms so you get the point. If you're married, you should live as if you don't have a wife. Now, we already know from later on that verse 33, Paul does not saying ignore the needs of your wife. In fact, you need to pay attention to that if you're married. But he's saying, don't let your, don't let your marriage become an excuse why well, I just really can't serve God because, you know, my wife, my husband, you know. The second was kind of shocking. Let those who mourn, those who mourn as if they did not. So your, even your grief or your trials cannot keep you from wholehearted devotion serving Christ. Third one, those who are happy, those who rejoice. It doesn't matter if things are going really, really well for you right now. You've been healed of something maybe. You have had a big fat raise or you have opportunity and, and time to do some really fun things. Don't let the blessings of God somehow deter you. Wouldn't this be tragic that the blessings of God would deter you from serving the God who blessed you? Because it just isn't time anymore because now we can enjoy all these things. Number four, that those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, which it isn't, which we, which we, which we can't keep. So don't let your pursuit of buying that next house, car, business, cabin, motorcycle, whatever, don't let that pursuit consume you. Don't let the pursuit of your fully funded re retirement or your dream vacation or whatever it might be somehow so possess your life that you actually don't serve Christ with that short time you have to do that here on earth. Because it's not yours to keep. And someday we'll all see that everything we thought we owned, we didn't. And the time will come when the mortgage payments we focused on for newer, bigger, better, the things we bought to feel good, look good, or the Amazon packages on our doorway, none of them are going to go with us. The world in its present form is passing away. And we all know it, right? But we just need to read it once in a while, don't we? The fifth one. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Um, some of your translations say the dealings of this world. It's actually a word for employment, and it may indicate those who employ others. So the businessman. The busy businessman who employs others. Don't let running your business, is that what he's saying? Don't let running your business keep you from serving Christ. I remember reading about a very successful uh, CEO of a, of a corporation. And his, a Christian, his, his generosity was not just that he could write a bigger check than most, but that he gave time to prepare and teach a young boy's Sunday school class every week. Not engrossed, not obsessed, not consumed. It's all temporary. Your marriage is temporary. And thankfully, our grieving is temporary. And the dream house, and the motorcycle, and the business, and the IRA, it's all, it's all temporary. Why are you warning us like this, Paul? Verse 32, I'd like you to be free from anxiety or concern. It seems his point, though, is 
I want you to be unbothered, undeterred, undistracted from the rel- by the relatively unimportant things of life. And then he applies it to marriage and the advantage of singleness. Uh, there's this contrast going on. The, the married man's got to pay attention to his wife. The married woman has to pay attention to her husband, etc. But the single person is able to, to give more full devotion to the Lord. And he didn't say this at all to be against marriage. This is the same Paul who wrote what we studied about, I think on Mother's Day we were looking at this family passages of, of uh, Ephesians. Ephesians 6, 4, that dads, that next generation, that's on our shoulders to make sure they at least understand the nurture and admonition, the teaching of the Lord. The, the family needs to be the primary point of, of discipleship. I'm so proud of the efforts of our families here and dads who care deeply to shepherd the family God gave you. Kids bring chaos to our kitchens, clutter to our bedrooms. They fill our calendar. Paul's not against family. Just a warning that we can't let even family or marriage excuse us, distract us from devotion to the Lord, but realize, singles, you have a spiritual advantage. The Lord's affairs, or however your translation says, how he may please the Lord. So Paul says, on one hand, I'm not going to agree with those legalistic ascetics who says, don't get married, but realize that if you are single, you actually have some spiritual potential that others don't have an advantage. You don't have the children, the diapers, the school stuff. Add on to the house. Got to make more money. Send them to college, whatever it might be. And so be, be fully engaged as possible. But if you're married, that's good. You haven't sinned. Stay that way. Stay married. Care about the needs of your spouse. But never take your eyes off the primary purpose at the end of verse 35. That you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Wouldn't that be a good plaque? Not that you just, just something would, would that be your purpose statement to live in undivided attention to the Lord, that whatever your status in life in any way, that that's your goal? I made the statement earlier that I want to try to explain. Don't be guilty of worshiping your family. Please understand what I'm saying and not saying. You know I love my family and I treasure uh, Priscilla and our six children and the in-laws and the growing garden of grandchildren so much. But God's word is telling me that I cannot make my family or my devotion to the family my identity. I am God's child and God's servant first and foremost. And so in my family, my first goal must be, my major prayer must be for their spiritual development and their own discipleship because I have a primary place, but I can't worship them. That is, I cannot worship or bow down at their desires or my desires for them that would somehow feed my ego. I can't, I can't let that consume me. How do, how, how, how do sometimes Christians fall into worshiping their family? I, please understand my heart, and if, 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 it doesn't, if the Spirit doesn't apply it to you, don't, don't worry about it. But it, hopefully I got the attitude of, of uh, Paul at the beginning of verse 35. I'm trying to say this for our own good. There are two extremes that bother me sometimes in the, bo- in the body of Christ when family can replace 
worship of God. One I could call, these are like ditches, extremes. The secularized Christian family that, has, that is conforming to the world. That is, there seems to be this unhealthy pressure they put either on themselves and or their children to succeed in the world. And so there is an obsession with whatever activities, whatever it takes to bring them to success in life, world's definition. One, one symptom of that is when parents have their children involved in way too many activities. Just a symptom, not the problem. Activities which a parent can perceive would do what? To what end? Enable them to be more accepted and popular? To make as much money as possible? And so suddenly or subtly, there is this transition from a good pursuit of excellence, excellence is good, to the selfish pursuit of status for status' sake. It's not a matter of how many activities are too many. It's a, it's, an, it's, an, it's a goal. But somehow if the activities of, if activities are geared for the success of the world and consume so much time that there is not time for that child to spend simply something more than even sitting here. But where they're they see themselves as part of the body of Christ with teachers and, and mentors and peers who are likewise devoted to the undivided devotion to the Lord. Then, then if, if our time is all consumed in those other things, then it's maybe too many, too many things. It's a symptom, not the problem, but concern that the secularized family can conform to the world. I have another Concern on the other side, and it might surprise you that there is such a thing, an overly spiritualized Christian family. Is that possible? What would mark that family? I think it would be fearing the world. As many of you know, we, we homeschooled our children through eighth grade, and we do not regret it. It's, this has nothing to do about school. That, that's, that's a parent's decision spiritually as, as well as anything. My concern is when parenting is, is driven by fear of the world. That uh, we kind of desperately think I've got to do everything to keep them from being contaminated by the world. We, we get it. We're talking, about, we're talking about extremes, right? But like I, if I do everything right as a parent, and I need to do everything right, then I can have perfect Christian children. And our fear can, <clears throat> our fear can transition to pride that maybe I have done everything right. So, and this obsession with perfect, perfect parenting and perfect kids can become a burden or anxiety that parents cannot bear. And that sometimes children are anxious to escape. Fear can distract us from serving Christ in the world 
that needs a lot of grace and has a lot of messiness. So somehow that has to be part of our parental prayers and discipleship. And so I simply say that to, uh, if, you, if you see yourself, parents, as, as sliding towards one ditch or another, uh, to, to hear what, what God is saying, because we want to lead our family in worship, not worship our family. We want to point them to the real goal, which is the worship of our Lord as we have sung, the King of creation. Time is short. The world is passing away. Live in undivided, undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's the goal, single or married. Paul had a couple other issues that evidently they asked about, so we're going to look at them. A little bit of uncertainty what he's all saying, so if you follow along in your Bible, you just might find you're, you're saying, what verse is he reading? If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man does the right thing. So either way, so when he, marry, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. <laughs> um, he puts a couple Bible translations side by side, and they seem to say almost different things. The one thing that is, is, is clear, that Paul preferred uh, singleness, and that's still a part of this. But there is someone in, uh, in verse um, 36 who, and it's a little bit uncertain, um, he or she, but if someone wants to seriously cons- consummate the, the wedding, the marriage of someone to whom they are betrothed, feel free, it's okay to marry. The uncertain part is this description of the person. There's a term here that you know, the language actually is more like um, past the peak, kind of like going over a mountain pass, right? Kind of like you're just cresting it. And it's uncertain whether it's describing the, the man whose passions are like, I better get married. <laughs> or if it's the woman who is over the hill, something that, like my translation read, like, uh, if this is your last chance, feel free to be married. But whatever it is, it's very blunt, practical advice and saying that sometimes there's a time to get married and, and if, if you get married, that's good. If not, that's good too. But I still, he still is making the case for the advantage spiritually of singleness. Okay, So that, that's one issue in case you came in wondering about that one. The other one, verses 39 to 40, is, is an important one for us to know. Uh, what, what about... It? So, so if singleness is, a, is a, an advantage... Should someone who has lost their spouse not remarry? What does he say? A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. He must be a believer. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think I too, too that I have the Spirit of God. Again, the singleness he prefers. But Marriage should be permanent, but you are free to remarry. There, we discussed last week that in Corinth, being a newer church and people coming to faith in the just two to three years probably before, there were a lot of spiritually mixed marriages. And he's already given that advice early in chapter 7, saying, uh, stay with your, your mate, even if, if, you're, if he or she is unsaved, just stay, because you might have an influence on them. But, um, but so in that case, if you're... Spouse has died and you're starting over. What should you do? 
You're a widow. You're a widower. You may marry. Make sure he belongs to the Lord. Because if you, if you follow the, his stress throughout this chapter has been about you want to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness is better because of that. But ah, what if, you're, if you have two people who are devoted to serving the Lord? That can be an amazing team. So I think he's making the case, hey, th- this, is, this is the way you redeem marriage, is two believers with single-hearted devotion to the Lord, and now God uses both of you. So although the passage in, on, in its overall impact is like elevating singles and saying singles, you are not second rate. You have a special place in the body of Christ that, that is, can be leveraged for the kingdom. If you are married, you want to, you want to have that dynamic where both of you are going that direction. Young people, if you're looking to get married, that's what you're looking for. Someone who belongs to the Lord, I mean really belongs to the Lord and is focused on serving the Lord to whom they belong. Officiating at a wedding yesterday always brings back memories of over the years uh, many different premarital counseling sessions and weddings and then watching couples spiritually flourish and some flounder, some divorce. And so it's kind of ironic to to read this at the end of this chapter that while he's elevating the Christian single, he's saying, but I'm all for a Christian marriage where, where, where there's a godly dad and there's a godly mom and, and they have this spiritual unity. But he says, my major point is this, that your identity is in Christ, not your marital status. And if your identity is in Christ, then wholehearted devotion to him is the only thing that makes sense. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful on the Father's Day that we have the perfect dad, that you are the one who <clears throat> guides, nurtures, cares, disciplines loves unconditionally. Uh, Lord, this, this passage today and our fellowship today, our worship today, finds each of us in a different place in life, uh, maybe chronologically, maybe our marital status and financial and so many different things. Lord, we're, we're the body of Christ and we're so different. And so, Lord, just pray that your Spirit would catch us where we are and would uh, speak clearly to us anything that you, you wanted us to hear today from your word, that we would say yes to you. We love you. We want to be part of your family first. Help us to uh, recalibrate our, our status where maybe we've been discouraged compared to others or if we've uh, been arrogant compared to others, that we would see ourselves as dearly loved children and uh, you count us worthy to, to be your slave, your servant, for those purposes of that'll last because indeed our time is short. In Jesus' name, amen.